0: In chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uses more fully his characteristic method of teaching, the parable. This third major discourse in Matthew's Gospel encompasses nearly all of the chapter and consists of seven parables and some interpretive information regarding those parables. As they are found in this Gospel and in Matthew's source, Mark, these stories appear to be spoken by Jesus all on the same day. This discourse then is sometimes referred to as the day of the parables and I will focus most of my comments there. Recalling the previous lesson, chapters 11 and 12 of this gospel were dominated by the themes of unbelief and the rejection of Jesus. The parables in chapter 13 are Jesus' response to that rejection. In them, Jesus restates his teaching that those who accept his yoke become his true family. This particular set of parables is not designed to teach us how to live the Christian life, as are many of his parables. Instead, these address the kingdom of heaven and our response to its coming. In fact, Matthew uses these stories to further develop his Christology, his understanding of Christ, that in Jesus, the reign of God is at hand. Parables are familiar to all of us. Most of us can immediately call to mind a favorite, The Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the workers in the vineyard. But what exactly is a parable, and why did Jesus use them so frequently? The answers to these two questions will go a long way toward helping us to better understand this chapter. The Greek word for parable is best translated as set side-by-side, meaning a comparison. Different uses and translations of the word might also suggest a mystery or a riddle. Many of us can recall our response to some of the parables and agree that a parable is a story whose meaning is not immediately apparent. The most popular definition among biblical scholars seems to be that of C. H. Dodd, who wrote, At its simplest, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt of its precise application to tease it into active thought. Some additional characteristics of the parable are important for us to understand. Remember, they were originally oral stories, not written. There was no time for deep reflection and research on the part of the hearer. As such, the impact of the spoken parable was immediate and for the most part limited to one meaning. The explanations offered in two passages in this chapter are much too complicated for a parable in its original setting. Instead, the ex- explanations create allegories where every little detail has a hidden meaning. It is likely, therefore, that verses 18 to 23 and 36 to 43 of chapter 13 are additions by Matthew, meant to expand the meaning of the parable for his specific audience. As Dodd's definition suggests, the useful parable will compel our interest through the use of vivid or extraordinary images. Often, the image will even be shocking. Generally though, the useful parable will take something that the hearer understands—something familiar and common—and use it to teach about something that is not easily understood. In Matthew 13, the images are of farming, fishing, baking, and searching for valuable things. These images put into pictures some truth, a truth that often can't be adequately explained with simple words. We discover the truth for ourselves and come to a fuller understanding of that truth. And yet, for those who are too lazy to think or too blinded by prejudice to see, the image conceals the truth. These are the reasons that Jesus often taught in parables, and this is why he answered as he did when the disciples asked him why he speaks in parables. Because knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven has been granted to you, but to them it has not been granted. I speak to them in parables because they look, but do not see and hear, but do not listen or understand. Jesus seems to be saying that the secrets of the kingdom are not being taught to the crowds. Rather, they are being revealed to those who, because of their discipleship, are capable of understanding. Some find this statement by Jesus difficult. It seems to be too exclusionary for our understanding of Jesus. Yet, the statement is considerably less harsh and exclusive than Mark's version which reads, in order that they may not be converted and be forgiven. Mark seems to be explaining the opposition to Jesus as a form of predestination theology. That is, the unbelievers do not see, hear, and understand in fulfillment of God's plan for them. Matthew, however, considers their unbelief an unintentional result with a moral explanation. In other words, they are not inclined to believe. With this understanding of a parable and why Jesus used them in his instruction, let's look at the seven parables in chapter 13 and consider these things. What was Jesus' original message? What expanded message was Matthew delivering to his audience and what truth does it offer to each of us today? Let's begin with the parable of the sower. To discover Jesus' original simple message, we must first strip away all the allegorical meaning which is supplied in the explanation of verses 18 to 23. In light of the rejection that Jesus and His disciples had encountered in the previous scenes of the Gospel, it is likely that Jesus simply wanted to offer encouragement to His followers. The failure of the seed to grow or thrive on the road, rocky soil, and among thorns is simply a frustration that any farmer would face. There must be faith on the part of the farmer that the seed sown in good soil will produce an abundant harvest. And so it does in this parable producing a harvest of as much as a hundredfold. In this respect, this parable is similar to the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Jesus wanted his followers to know that though they were being rejected by some, they were sowing the word of the kingdom in the fertile soil of the human heart, and the harvest would be plentiful. For Matthew and his community, some 40 years later, The parable takes on a deeper meaning, illustrated by the explanation that he offers in verses 18 to 23. He encourages the members of his church to continue to do God's will despite those in their midst who jettison their faith for the trappings of wealth, who abandon their faith in the face of persecution, or who fail to understand the truth of their faith in the first place. In the original understanding of the parable, we are encouraged to continue our evangelization efforts despite what may seem to be insubstantial results. Matthew's explanation of the parable to his church applies to us as well. It is important for Christians to know that there is a difference between hearing the word and understanding it. Next, we consider the parable of the weeds among the wheat. There is a weed called bearded darnel that looks just like wheat before it grows a seeded head. Even the most experienced Palestinian farmer would be hard-pressed to tell the difference between the two. Once each has formed a head, however, they are easily distinguished from one another. Unfortunately for the farmer, by this time, the roots of the two plants are so intertwined that to uproot one would destroy the other. So wheat farmers must wait until the harvesting to separate the wheat. From the weeds. This parable of the kingdom has no parallel in the other gospels. It may be Matthew's version of Mark chapter 4 verses 26 to 29, the parable of the seed growing secretly, or it may be Matthew's own creation. On the lips of Jesus, the parable of the wheat and weeds was intended to reassure his disciples that the mixed reception they were getting was to be expected. Here just tolerance and patience until the final judgment. Matthew's community was a mixture of Gentiles and Jews, believers and unbelievers, the sincere and the insincere. The parable's purpose for them is the same as for the disciples. Matthew uses the words of Jesus to urge restraint and tolerance of those who are not followers of Christ, and paints a promising and fantastic picture of the coming judgment. For us, the parable reminds us that there is indeed a hostile power in the world that is trying to choke off the good seed. It points out to us that it is difficult to distinguish between the good and the bad. It teaches that ultimate judgment will come in the end, suggesting that what once was bad may become good and vice versa. Because of this, we must realize that judgment should be left to God and God alone. The parable of the great catch is essentially a restatement of the wheat and weeds parable in a nautical setting rather than an agricultural one. A fishing dragnet traps many useless things along with the intended catch of fish. Once the net is dragged ashore, the catch is separated. That part of the catch which is useful is kept while the rest is discarded. This parable once again reassures the disciples and the Matthaean community that God will judge and separate his catch in the end. For us, this parable offers at least one additional lesson. There are two views of church, one that is inclusive and one that is exclusive. The exclusive view of church holds that the church is made up of only the good people, those who are fully committed to follow the teachings of Christ but who is to judge when God has instructed us not to judge? The inclusive view of the church suggests that the church is full of many different types of people. That is, the church is open to all, just like the fish dragnet. It is made up of both the good and the bad, the useful and the useless, until the final reckoning. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, as a pair, speak to the truth that from small beginnings great things can come. The mustard seed is a very small seed indeed. Its diminutive size and astounding growth make it a common image or reference in Middle Eastern lore. The use of leaven to transform dough was also a very familiar domestic image to Jesus and his listeners. Everyone was familiar with the transforming power of leaven. Jesus used these familiar images to encourage his disciples in their mission and ministry. Though the task to evangelize to the ends of the earth might seem impossible, these parables give his followers hope. Their small movement will transform the world, just as leaven transforms dough. For Matthew's community and us, the message is the same, one of encouragement and perseverance in spreading the good news of Christ. The remaining two parables of the treasure and the pearl are also paired. It is interesting to contrast the way in which these valued possessions were found. It was common in those days that when a neighboring country was raiding the homeland, valuable treasures were often buried on one's property to be recovered at a later date. If the property owner was captured or murdered, however, the treasure may lay hidden for generations. That is how a hired hand or slave might come to find a treasure that the property owner knew nothing about. The treasure in the field was likely found quite by accident. The Pearl of Great Price, however, was found only after a long and deliberate search. These stories tell us that the kingdom is a priceless treasure, but neither the manner of discovery or the value of the kingdom is the main point of the parables. Instead, they tell us that we should respond to such a discovery with great joy, total commitment, and the willingness to sacrifice everything in order to possess the kingdom. The day of the parables concludes with Jesus asking his disciples a direct question Do you understand all these things? To Matthew, understanding was an essential characteristic of true discipleship, and the disciples boldly claimed to have understood Jesus' teachings. The clean, simple explanation of verse 52 might be that those who understand the parables and other instructions of Jesus regarding the kingdom must understand that the basis of his teaching is found in the law and the prophets. Conversely, those who understand the scriptures of Israel must expand their understanding of the kingdom by accepting new Christian traditions. Chapter 13 concludes with Jesus' rejection in his hometown of Nazareth. These five verses, which serve as a transition to the next chapter, are rich in meaning and imagery and could easily stand alone but they also function well as a conclusion to the day of the parables. After stressing patience, perseverance, and hope in the face of rejection and unbelief, Jesus goes to his hometown and even there finds rejection. The story reemphasizes that the journey for the Christian disciple will be long and hard. The gospel's audience will be stubborn. The remaining three chapters of this unit are filled with many of the miracle and healing stories that are familiar to us. There are additional confrontations with the scribes and Pharisees, and Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. One passage in particular, however, deserves our attention, and that is the healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter. The dialogue between Jesus and the woman contains rather harsh words spoken by the Lord which we need to understand, and it contains a startling display of faith on the part of the woman. Some find Jesus' response to this woman distressing. It doesn't fit with our image of Jesus to hear him say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, or it is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. We must remember that Jesus speaks harshly elsewhere in the Gospels. For example, we might find ourselves squirming a little bit when he says, Let the dead bury their dead. In our discomfort, we might be tempted simply to consider this passage as inauthentic. Perhaps some conservative Jewish Christians who were opposed to expanding the mission to the Gentiles inserted the harsh part of the story to bolster their position. Later, someone corrected the story and provided an upbeat ending. A different interpretation treats the story as authentic but contends that Jesus' treatment of the woman is not as harsh as it might seem. For example, the Greek word used for dog is in the diminutive form, meaning that the reference was to a household pet or a puppy and not the scavenger dogs that roamed the streets. Therefore, the insult is softened quite a bit. Also, we don't know the tone of voice or expression on the face of Jesus as he said these words. Perhaps he recognized the spirit, boldness, and love in her pleas and responded with a smile and joy in his eyes, hoping to engage her in witty banter just as it happened. Or perhaps he was simply testing her faith, planning on fulfilling her plea when she demonstrated her faith. Still another approach is to accept this story just as it is written with all its harshness. Jesus knew the time to complete his mission was short, and he certainly recognized that his mission was first to the lost sheep of Israel. He had instructed his disciples not to go into Gentile territory, and his actions here are consistent with that demand. The Canaanite was a Gentile and a woman, and therefore held no status in the minds of Jews at the time. To become comfortable with this exchange, we must recall that Jesus rarely ministered to a non-Jew. The stories of the Centurion Servant and the Gerasene Demoniac, both in chapter 8, are the only other instances where it occurs in this gospel. Considering that the gospels were written for audiences that were largely Gentile, it would seem likely that the evangelists would have included as many accounts as possible about Jesus' treatment of the Gentiles. The rarity of these events lend credibility to the belief that they took place just as recorded. We can better understand Jesus' response if we recognize that his mission was indeed to Israel. His recognition of the faith which the Canaanite woman possessed allowed him to open the door of his ministry to the Gentiles, but only to those Gentiles who had faith in Israel's Messiah. We need to recall that Israel does have a place of privilege in salvation theology. It is by God's grace that we have been admitted to the ranks of God's chosen people. The Canaanite woman's faith must also be admired in this exchange. The story, following as it does the rebuke of the Pharisees, is surely meant to contrast her authentic faith with their hypocrisy. She seeks out Jesus, follows him, boldly petitions him, persists in calling after him, and finally falls to her knees in front of him in a posture of worship, all because of her faith. She even accepts his verbal rebuff, and responds again with deference, humor, and persistence. Jesus is finally moved to respond, "'O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish.'" Nowhere else in Matthew's Gospel does Jesus commend someone for their great faith. It is this emphasis on the faith of the Canaanite woman that connects us with our earlier discussion of the day of the parables and with the healings of chapters 14 and 15. In Nazareth, Jesus was unable to work many miracles because of their lack of faith. For the Canaanite, conversely, it was because of her faith that he healed her daughter. Together, these stories teach us persistence. Persistence in faith, persistence in our pursuit of Jesus, and persistence in doing the ministry and mission to which we are called by virtue of our baptism. In the middle of chapter 16, we hear Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Most of Israel, including Peter and the others, expected the Messiah to be a conquering hero who would sweep the Romans from Palestine and lead Israel to power. That was not the Messiah Jesus embodied. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus predicts his passion for the first time telling his disciples that he must suffer, die, and be raised on the third day. So not only is the Messiah not the warrior king many expected, he will be the bloody victim instead. Jesus then tells them the conditions of their discipleship. Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If they truly believe he is the Messiah, they must unite their lives and destiny with that of Jesus. Imagine the incredible faith his disciples must have had to follow Jesus into his passion. Jesus asks the same of us, to say no to self and yes to God, to take up the burden of sacrifice and offer to him our constant obedience in thought, word, and action. What great faith it takes indeed.